You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Welcome to Afternoon Cyber Tea with Ann Johnson, where we talk with some of the biggest security influencers in the industry about what is shaping the cyber landscape and what should be top of mind for the C-suite and other key security decision makers. I'm Ann Johnson, and today we are talking about how traditional perimeter-based network defenses are being replaced by Zero Trust as the best model for enterprise threat detection and response. Zero Trust is a strategy for validating the trustworthiness of each entity in an enterprise. People's identities, a company's software applications, the services, and all devices start with a trust level of zero. Activities are continually verified and security controls are automatically enforced. You could call it trust but verify, then re-verify continually. My guest today is Dr. Chase Cunningham, VP and Principal Analyst at Forrester. Chase specializes in Zero Trust strategy, as well as security operations centers, counter threat operations, encryption, and network security. He advises senior tech executives on the controls, standards, frameworks, and tools that can secure their business operations. Chase is a retired U.S. Navy chief cryptologist with nearly 20 years of experience in cyber forensics and cyber analytics operations. Chase, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you very much for having me. And I didn't know you were at Navy. My my late father was at Navy during World War II. I have a deep affection for the Navy. Yeah, it's, uh, I tell people all the time, don't say this to Forrester, but it's the best job I ever had. I miss it every day. <laughs> I imagine so. It's probably worth noting as we record here, depending on when people listen to the podcast, that we're living in a, a really unusual time. Um, unprecedented circumstances with the global pandemic um, that's really impacting most nations. Um, are you yourself working any differently because of that? Luckily, we we work relatively remotely and it's mostly uh, travel. So we don't really go to the corporate office now. That's for, for those of us that aren't, uh, you know, a headquarters up in Boston. But uh, the only real difference for me has been um, just, you know, responding to everyone else that is now living nonstop on, uh, you know, Zoom and Microsoft Teams and the online chat. Yeah, I find myself on calls. It's it's kind of funny because we've managed to fill in those hours, right? And I'm on the phone from my family comment. They said, I don't know how you can be on the phone from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. every day. Yeah, right. You get a little bit, uh, you know, kind of brain dead from being on calls all day long. I, I find I need to, you know, at least have a 15 minutes here or there to get up and walk around a little and just get some fresh air away from the computer. Are you taking yeah. that time? Yeah, it's uh, it's nice that the sun has finally come out here in Virginia. I was able to take the dog for a walk yesterday, and uh, this afternoon I'm going to take the dog for a walk too. So getting out of the house and getting some actual uh, oxygen is a good thing. All right, last important question before we get started. I'm, I have three dogs. What kind of dog do you have? So I have a monster Doberman who is giant and scary, but he's probably basically just a big kitty cat. He'll he'll take pets from anybody. And then I have a Pomeranian that is evil incarnate, and people think he's the one to pet. He's not. <laughs> so funny. I have, um, I have a Weimaraner and an English Bulldog, and they're both good size, but they're, again, sweethearts. And then I have a Dachshund, and she is, she is just vicious. So it is yep. kind of funny that the little dogs are you know, very rabid at times. Yep, I guess it's uh, when you're that small, you got to be mean to survive. Exactly. So let's talk a little bit about trust. 
Um, any conversation about trust must obviously address relationships. So can you talk a little bit about the relationship between identity security, device security, application security, infrastructure security, data security, and of course, network security, um, and anything else you think I should have included. And who within the enterprise is actually responsible for securing all of those domains? Yeah. So, you know, when you when you think about uh, users and identity and how that's part of this whole equation, it, for a long time, people really drove at uh, network first. And while I understand that there is an importance to taking care of the network. I mean, I, I did firewall rules when I was working at a cloud security company. Like I know how important that is, but when you actually boil it away uh, and you realize that identity, the usernames and passwords that we use, that's how you control all of that infrastructure. Someone logs in and changes rules and does whatever and blah, blah, blah. So if you can't take care of the users, you can't take care of their identity and their passwords, everything else is for naught. It, it doesn't matter how micro-segmented you might be, one bad administrator username and password can destroy that entire uh, micro-segmented security portfolio. So that, that's really why I think that there's been a twist in the narrative around that. And, you know, you talked about workloads and devices and everything. Everything out there requires, as it stands today, a user to log in and do something for all those pieces of infrastructure. So, therefore... Uh, that user must be a critical piece of security control. And how do you secure users? With things like MFA and, you know, out of band off and all those different uh, approaches. But, you know, we, we spend a lot of time wrapped around um, technical controls. And a lot of times people don't think about an exploitation. If you get a username and password, that can really wreck shop. Can you talk a little bit more about how a username and password, things like lateral movement and elevation of privileges, just not everyone who joins the podcast is a security expert. So I want to help them understand um, the impact of someone getting your username and password. Yeah. So your your username and password, I mean, that is your key in the digital space. Um, we all live with it. We all uh, use usernames and passwords all the time. The last bit of research I did, um, and we got a report kind of lining up on this, is the average home user has about 90 personal accounts and about 30 user accounts for work. So if you think about that right there, that's roughly 120-ish accounts with each one with a different username and password you're supposed to keep track of. So anyone that gets a hold of one of those, one out of 120, might have access to stuff that could be used for nefarious purposes. And when you think about how many people on how many applications, on how many devices and how much infrastructure, the numbers get exponentially huge really, really quickly. So that username and password is extremely, in my opinion and experience, is extremely critical to security. Chase, when we talk about multi-factor authentication, um, one of the story that always comes to mind for me is how people have a lot of passwords. And you, you mentioned that in your um, comments. And I go back to about six or seven years ago with my partner who was out of town and needed me to do something um, that he just didn't have the availability to do related to a financial transaction. And he called me and I said to him, I said, well, I'm going to need your username and password if you want me to access that account. And he said, oh, well, that's easy. I have a spreadsheet on my desktop that actually has all of the usernames and passwords for all of my accounts. 
And I've done that because you told me not to use the same username and password on each account. So it wasn't bad enough that the spreadsheet had the username and password for each of his financial accounts. It actually had the account names. So when you opened it, it said, you know, XYZ Bank and then username and password. So we quickly took care of that. And obviously I'm moving him into more multi-factor authentication these days. Yeah, and (laughs) that's a valid point, right? I mean, my my parents, I I set up password managers for them. um, And people say, oh, well, those have been compromised too. And it's like, well, yes, but it, what's what's easier for the bad guy, someone that puts it in a spreadsheet or something that's stored, you know, in a somewhat secure uh, application? Yeah, I, I ultimately went with him and just had him write them down and put them like in a, on a piece of paper that was someplace, you know, removed, right? I said, that's better than nothing because he was doing a good job with complex passwords. But now, of course, we've moved into the world of multi-factor authentication. We'll talk about that in a minute. But before, before we actually um, talk about that, is Microsoft has a point of view on zero trust is that in order for it to work as a security strategy, it actually needs to be woven not just through the organization's architectures or not just through technology and operational processes, but there's also a part of it that has to impact company culture and the the mindset of everyone working in the company. So can you talk about what are the most common points of attack? And can you also talk about how companies educate their end users as well as providing the technological controls to fortify the enterprise? Yeah, well, you know, uh, uh, until what, two and two, three weeks ago, we were basically looking at this evolution into the sort of zero trust space that was going to take about five years, we thought. We've had to do it now in in weeks, and it's only going to continue to get more complex over the next couple of weeks. Uh, So all that security that we had has been essentially tossed on its head, and we've got a workforce that is living outside the bounds of that secure infrastructure. So we, we have to adapt. I mean, we have no more choice anymore. The people that used to argue with me about, oh, we can't do this and we're not going to get there and this is not the future of work. Well, I mean, the reality of it is you are, whether you want to agree with it or not. And being able to do that at speed and at scale is probably the most difficult part of this. You know, users will continue to be the low-hanging fruit because like you said earlier, um, not everyone is a security person. Not everyone doesn't want to be a security person. So they don't know about all those tricky, nifty, hackery type things that happen. They just know that they want to do their job. And security needs to be built into how the user experiences their work. If that's not going on, then you're actually creating problems. You're not enabling better security operations. I think that that makes an awful lot of sense and, and that we you can't ever underestimate that user um, education experience. Can we talk then a little bit about how multi-factor authentication and strong authentication, you know, fits into that zero trust scenario? Because in my mind, if you, you talked about how bad usernames or passwords, right? So if you get the keys to the front door, it becomes much easier to compromise the environment. So what recommendations do you make to folks about rolling out multi-factor authentication type solutions? I think it's mandatory. I think it's something that everyone should have going, uh, you know, as fast as possible. And and anyone that kind of will argue with you about, you know, whether or not MFA and 2FA is um, difficult to deploy. I I sat down with my daughter and watched her turn on 2FA for Fortnite in about seven minutes. And she did it with no prompting from me. I just said, Callie, I want you to turn on uh, that 2FA. And she clicked through it and she was done. Um, So, you know, if a 10-year-old or 11-year-old now can do 2FA, everybody can. And the interesting thing really is she was able to understand the reason she was doing it was because she didn't want somebody messing with her Fortnite account. So if a kid that is essentially the uh, the future of what's going to be in, in the workspace can understand it, 
everyone should understand the value that comes from that. Uh, and it, it doesn't have to be super complicated. It doesn't have to be, you know, this mega brainiac thing to turn on. It should be, I can do it, enable it and be done in a few minutes. You know, and I think that goes to the point of it's incumbent on the, um, the, the manufacturers, right? Software people who are developing software to make it easy. I was actually doing it for my daughter, who's um, almost 19 recently on a couple of her um, accounts that she was using for school. And I was surprised that it was complex, right? It was like, wait a minute, this shouldn't be this hard. So I gave them some feedback and it's just how the GUI was built. You know, the user interface was built. Yeah. Because I had asked her to do it and she was struggling. It shouldn't be, it shouldn't be hard. It should be, you know, click this, click that and set up some sort of out of band off. Like that, that's enough to where you're, adding another layer in there, another step that makes it more difficult. Exactly. I also saw recently um, on your, I think it was on your Twitter feed that your, your kids' schools are closed for the rest of the year due to coronavirus. How are they holding up and, and have you put in place any additional defense strategies at home? Yeah, so they're here with me nonstop, which is, uh, is good for, you know, daddy-daughter time, but it's also a little bit rough on dad's sanity some days. Um, but, you know, <laughs> I have uh, created some additional um, rules just on my home network and firewall and, and on their accounts to sort of follow the same approach. And, uh, you know, I, as far as anything that's been uh, exceptionally difficult, I've made sure that it's it's relatively easy for them. But, they, they kind of know here at the house, like they're going to do security stuff because dad's policy is it's not optional. Yeah, I know. I live in one of those uh, houses. I can tell you that I am I try to be as deviceless as possible, meaning, you know, things like um, having my refrigerator online. I turn everything off. I have some specific rules of my firewall and it, they just get very frustrated with me sometimes. Yeah, we've got uh, switches and phones and that type of stuff, but all the uh, I. IOT, I've pretty much um, disabled. The only IOT that I have in the house is I have a Nest thermostats, but even those, like you were saying, I created individual firewall rules for each one of them. So if you just go off and Google, um, you know, firewall rules for uh, home devices, it's there's a, a whole bunch of different guidance out there. There's YouTube videos on sort of how to set up and configure it. I I happen to have Comcast at home, and I run everything through um, the the system that sort of is provided there, but on the on the back end, I took a, a couple of uh, things from, you know, just Google searches and basically uh, made a few edits on some of their rules that now those those devices only go out to, the, you know, the cloud where I want them to go. They're just not uh, sending everything that they probably should be sending. So let's go back a little bit and talk um, about some of the work you're doing. Um, you recently at Forrester evaluated enterprise detection and response providers. And by the way, thank you. Um, for, the, for the note about Microsoft as, as a very good vendor there. Um, but can you tell listeners why it's important for organizations to be able to identify these impacted assets and why it's important to even have an EDR solution in place? Well, the endpoint now is, is, is really one of the most key components of this whole uh, approach. You know, it's, it, it is back to that, that paradigm of if you accept that ZT is the, the sort of future state of what secure infrastructure is going to look like, then you have to realize that because of the way we're working now, you have to defend what you can defend and you defend what has highest priority and highest likelihood of exploitation first. And if everything is outside the bounds of your perimeter, then that endpoint now becomes a key point of compromise and control. So EDR is where that stuff begins to be a defensive capability. I completely agree. And I, I don't see a lot of pushback from organizations. As a matter of fact, just the opposite, right? I see a lot of folks rushing to adopt um, EDR and rushing to roll it out at much 
broader scale than they ever did with multi-factor authentication. So I think I think we're in a good place in the industry that people understand what a threat what a threat vector the endpoint is, regardless of what what the endpoint is. It's still it's still going to be a threat to your enterprise. Can you talk a little bit about your view on AI and machine learning and how that's helping drive security analytics or, or helping us be better as an industry, understanding and sorting through the millions of signal we get every day? Yeah, so let's, you know, I, I wrote about this in my book I've recently published, but um, there there's, there is no AI. Like, let's, you know, being perfectly frank about it, right? There is no how that's waking up and doing things for everyone. What there is, is there is really well-crafted machine capabilities and mathematics and algorithms that are allowing um, sort of seamless activities to occur. And that's what you're trying to get to. So what we see normally that is problematic in the space around, analytics and uh, intelligence is that it doesn't actually usually when it's done incorrectly enable an outcome. Now, if you apply quote AI, which is the industry term for ML into that, you should get valuable responses and plans and capabilities that come from all that telemetry. And that's, that's the end state. That's as good as it's going to get for the foreseeable future. So I guess I'll caveat with uh, what I mean by there's there's no AI is there's no um, there's a misnomer right of this like uh, you know functional you know self aware thing that's actually making decisions for you and etc. And that's that's not really what we have. Organizations might have AI like capabilities where um, their system is helping them make better decisions. And that's what you should be trying to get to is leveraging intelligence and data and telemetry from systems and then processing it somehow to give you an outcome that is optimized based on that information. And that if you're doing that, you're getting the value from the solution rather than just being uh, inundated and drowning in data, which is not where anyone wants to be. It makes a lot of sense. And you know how the security industry can always be attached to our buzzwords. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 not, I don't think, incorrect for us to say AI because people think that that's kind of the, you know, sexy, cool term that sounds like something amazing is happening. But, you know, for the, just for the pragmatic space, every chance I get to say, like, there is no AI, I'm going to do it just because I, I really am looking forward to the day when there is one, but we don't have it yet. We like to give um, folks um, takeaways, right? Some firm takeaways from these podcasts. So a lot of, um, I see a lot of our customers globally are thinking about zero trust models. Um, what advice would you give them about how they start? What are their, you know, some pre-steps, some first steps? What should they think about when they're exploring relationships with a vendor? Um, and how, how would you um, recommend people actually go about it? You know, one of the most uh, key pieces that I think organizations should ask a vendor is, how are you doing this in your infrastructure? Um, ask them, you know, I, 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 write, I wrote blogs about so ask them if they're eating their own dog food. And, you know, if you were going to buy a truck from, a, from somebody that was selling trucks, you would want to make sure that they've driven the thing. You want to make sure they know, you know, that a truck can haul the loads you're looking to haul. It wouldn't just be, oh, well, they, they're selling me a truck and they've never tested one. I should buy that from them. If they can't tell you, how they're enabling it, how it's part of their long-term strategy, what they're doing with it, then that is an immediate um, red flag in, in my opinion. And uh, you know, the other thing that comes to, to light there is if you spend the time and do some uh, you know, searches online, you can find out if an organization really understands the long-term strategic initiative here because it will be clear in their messaging that they know what they're talking about and that they're able to map 
their capabilities into those uh, sort of follow-on planning stage. And where should a customer get started on their own? If they're you know, looking um, either with or without a vendor, what do you think some of the first steps they could take? I think it depends on the maturity of the organization. Uh, we've, we've written a couple of reports around this where if you're in a heavily regulated, you know, highly sort of cyber mature organization, you're probably into those latter stages where you're ready to handle things like dynamic firewall configurations and rule-based this and whatnot in the network and data side of the equation. Whereas if they're uh, relatively kind of new and unregulated or not compliance heavy organizations, they probably should start with users and identity and devices first because that's what will eat their lunch the fastest. So last question for me, um, I've asked you, I've asked you a lot of questions and I want to give you the opportunity as I do with all of my guests. Um, first, thank you for coming on, but just talk a little bit about and uh, maybe promote a little bit about your work at Forrester. Sure. So uh, Forrester, primarily I cover, like you were talking about, zero trust as a strategy. I cover the market and kind of look at the 50,000 foot view on what's going on in that space. Um, I, because I'm a retired military and one of the few analysts we've got that, uh, still carries some of the clearances you need. I'm the Lone Ranger on Capitol Hill. So I do a lot of work with the federal government and uh, participate in a lot of working groups there too. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm pretty kind of plugged in, I guess you could say, with uh, the federal government and their space around zero trust as well. And to end with a fun question, what is your one strategy um, other than walking your dog for yourself for staying sane during um, this, this time we're living in right now? Yeah, you know, I've uh, I've actually started picking up um, gaming again just because I, I I haven't played Xbox in forever or PlayStation or any of that in forever, and I've I've been sitting around going, well, I can't I can't go out. I've seen every movie there is to see. Um, I've read all the books in my house, and Amazon's del- you know delivery is a little bit delayed. So the only thing I can do is do stuff digital, and uh, I, I've taken up uh, you know playing the games I used to play a while back. <laughs> Um, and it's something just to get your mind off of, you know, the everyday and kind of breaks the monotony. That's fantastic. I actually started my, my, I have a lot of friends that have always like binge watch series and that's really never been my thing, but I actually binge watched um, the Tiger King this weekend. That was and good. Yep. It was, it's like every episode was more shocking than the last, right? It was like, yeah, wow. That was a crazy one to watch. I, I actually, I think um, Ozark on Netflix is probably the best series on TV. I will pick that up on my weekend viewing next weekend. Well, Chase, thank you so much for joining me on uh, Afternoon Cyber Tea and have a fantastic day. Thank you so much for having me. Great talking to you. So the episode with uh, Chase was really interesting because one of the things that resonated with me is we we continually here at Microsoft talk about using MFA for 100% of your users 100% of the time. And no matter what topic we're talking about with cybersecurity and threats and bad actors and accessing your enterprise, username and passwords always come up as a major vulnerability for customers. So to hear Chase reinforce MFA helped give it validation, but also helped me feel like we still have a long way to go in the industry. And I'm going to keep talking about it until I see the industry at a maturity of adoption that we don't have to talk about MFA quite as much and we're just not there yet. Thank you to our audience for joining Afternoon Cyber Tea. Look forward to seeing you next time. This week on the Microsoft Threat Intelligence Podcast, join us as we dig deep into the XZ backdoor with its finder, Andreas Freund, and senior security researcher, Thomas Rochia. Be sure to listen in and follow us at msthreatintelpodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.